I just have to say this, as I sat there and tried to steal my thoughts before the sermon, uh, to sit there with my eyes closed and listen to our choir is a blessed and wonderful thing. They do an excellent job. They really do. And I say that because we're speaking about the flood today, and they're going to take out the best seats. They're on higher ground, folks. Your pastor is in Africa on a journey there. Andy Birchfield and I leave uh, for India at the end of this week, and I just want to say uh, publicly we thank you, all of you that have combined your efforts with us for River of the Spirit to send kids to Bible school, to send women to literacy classes that completely changed their lives, and to help aid the church workers over there. We have eight churches now, and we may have more. We'll, We'll find out when we get there. But if you'd like to follow us to India, I brought this neat little iPhone thingy. And they tell me that you can take neat videos with it. So every day I'm going to record video while I'm in India and we'll post it on the church website. You don't have to have a password or anything. And you can see what I'm seeing over there. If I can find out how to turn that on. <laughs> have to get my 11 year old to do that. Okay, we see no reason to leave you out of the journey. Would you like to go on a journey today? How about I take you back a thousands of years to the land of Mesopotamia where Noah built the ark? Would you like to do that? You're going to have to sign a waiver, folks. Because the fact of it is, this is no bedtime story. It's really not. It was the most catastrophic event globally that ever happened in our world. Okay? But what we like to do with stories in the Bible sometimes is with Noah, of course, we build the ark, we put Noah on it, put his family in there, put the animals in there, get them in the flood, get them out. Mankind goes on. But what I want to do today is take you through a journey that's really fantastic. And all I can do is be your tour guide. I can't tell you what to think. So the first verses of chapter 6 in Genesis is what we're going to be dealing with. And Jesus invites us to go there. He's speaking on the Mount of Olives. And his disciples come to him and say, Jesus, tell us, when will your coming be? Signifying your second coming. And when will the end of the age be? And in a long discourse, Jesus tells them, as in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Wow. What's that mean? Well, let's get on this journey. Okay. Chapter 6. And it came to pass that as men started to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters and they were beautiful and they took all they wanted To be their wives. Okay, that's a pretty strange verse. But let's look at it just a little bit. Let me tell you something about the time of Noah. Okay? Science can no longer deny that there was a catastrophic global event that happened about the time the Bible says it does. And from all the archaeological remains and all the fossils they've found, they've concluded that there's only one force of nature that could have caused that. You want to take a guess what it was? Yes, water. We're glad they got that straight. But what they found under the sediment of what they think the flood left is even more fascinating to me. It's the time of Noah. It is a civilization they found that was vast. And it was well versed in all forms of art, poetry, musical instruments, both wind, string, and brass. I guess that would be wind. They found court systems, government set up. They say there is no reason to believe that there were not hundreds of millions of people on the world at that time. Can you believe it? Vast civilizations. 
They weren't just dumb old cavemen and women now, I'll tell you. We still can't figure out how they built the pyramids. No, a vast civilization, very well formed and educated. That's the time of Noah. All right, but what does this word, sons of God, Beneha Elohim, the E-L there stands for God. That's his name. And what this translates means that the very hand of God made the Beneha Elohim. It's used four times in the Bible, three in Job, one in Luke. And it always refers, now hear me on this journey, always refers to angels every single time. A direct creation of God's hand. Adam is also a direct creation of God's hand, but not you and not me. We are Benoth Adam, daughters or sons of Adam. You see, if you can figure out the, the, the letters in Hebrew, there's 22 of them, and figure out what they mean, you can figure out what the text says, just like you can in any language. The word for took up there is the same verb that Eve used to take the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. So I don't think the women in this verse had any choice in the matter. What do you think? Probably not. So figure these words out. The next slide shows Adam, of course. Adamay means man. Okay? So we're figuring this out. We're looking at the text and really finding out what it means. The next one's a fun one that I picked out just so you could see. Muth, Methuselah, the root for death. How would you like to have a son named Methuselah? His death shall bring. What? Well, we don't know. But keep that kid safe. Okay? Every day, how's Methuselah doing today? Well, he's got a cold. Well, everybody brings chicken soup. They're scared to let this kid die. Maybe that's the reason he lived to 969 years old. We don't know. All right, continuing the journey. Verse 3, God says, My spirit will not always strive with mankind because he's mortal, flesh. Thus his days will be 120 years. Now, I was raised to believe we got to live to 120. But I can tell you what. Somebody's getting shafted on that deal. 120 since Jesus' time, the people that have reached that is a little bitty list in the Guinness Book of World Records. Oh, that's probably not what it means. And we know that after the flood, Noah lived another 300 years. So we know people lived hundreds of years after that. So I can't really help you there. The Hebrew doesn't help us much, but I can tell you something I did find that might be of value. From the time that God said, my spirit will not contend with mankind, his years will be 120, to the day they entered the ark was, guess how many years? 120. 120. Could it be on our journey that God was saying, you know what? I can't do this forever with these people. But in my mercy, in my compassion for the creation that I've made, I'll give them 120 years. And I'll stick a boat in somebody's front yard. Maybe they'll get the idea. I don't know. We continue on. Verse 4 gets even stranger on our journey. Now remember, you might hear things and see things you, you weren't accustomed to. There were Nephilim in the land in those days and also afterward. What is the word for Nephilim? Well, it gets translated into our Bibles to mean giants. But I'm going to tell you right now, that's not what it means in the Hebrew. But let me say there were giants in the land. When it means and also afterwards or after that, that means after the flood. Okay? Giants in the land. Okay, we know there were giants in the land. David fought Goliath. 
Goliath had four brothers, anywhere between nine and 12 foot tall. Those guys were big. All right. We also know when the children came out of Egypt that they sent spies into the promised land. And of those spies, two came back, Caleb and Joshua, and said, we can take this land. It's a land of milk and honey. The other guys said, well, hold on there, buddy. It's definitely a land of milk and honey, but there are Nephilim in the land, and we are grasshoppers in their sight. Oh, yeah, there were giants in the land, Nephilim. But let me tell you what Nephilim really means from the Hebrew. It means fallen ones. It means cast out. It means deserted. Now, on a little side note here on our journey, we know that God, by his hand, created a powerful angel, an angel of light that guarded his throne. His name was Lucifer. And we know that Lucifer became so powerful that he thought he would elevate himself above God. And so God had to cast him out. The scriptures also support that when that event happened, about a third of the angels in heaven went with Lucifer. They were cast out. They deserted their post. What are we saying here? Nephilim, fallen ones, to be cast out. Well, go back to the scripture one there, Fred. If you can. There we go. No, back up. There you go. All right, so we've got these Nephilim. we got the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bare children of them. And the same became mighty men of old, men of renown. What in the world does that mean? Troy, are you saying that daughters of humans and fallen angels co-inhabited and they bore children and these were superhumans or hybrids? I'm just telling you what the text says. Remember, this is a journey and you signed the waiver note. All right. Men of old, I think the word is gigborum, which means the mighty ones, also means earthborn. Okay, go to the next slide there, Fred. All right, so we've got these mighty ones. When it gets translated from the Hebrew to the Greek to the English, the Greeks had their own word for that. Guess what it was? Titans. Titans. What are you thinking in your mind? Hercules? Atlas? I don't know. This is a fantastic journey that we're taking. I'm not suggesting that Samson had anything to do with the line of the fallen angels. But you can see that when that kind of power is put in human hands, it can go bad quickly. Samson's life was a tragedy, to say the least, as a judge for the Jewish people. Okay. Well, we've taken this far on the journey. The next three verses are not good, folks. Six, I mean, five, six, and seven talk about God as he looks upon the earth and he says, wickedness was over the face of the earth. And God looked and he saw that every imagination of the thought of man's heart was evil. And for the Hebrew there, for the imagination, it's not just his thoughts. His very intent, his very purpose was being on evil continually. The word there for Hebrew continually is every day God saw this. And God finally said, I will destroy mankind, which I made. I will wipe him from the face of the earth and the beast of the ground, those that crawl up on the ground and the fowl of the air, because my heart is sorry and aches. I'm sorry I ever made him. Oh, 
The same word that God uses for sorrow there is the same word He used to tell Eve, your childbirth will be painful, full of sorrow. A horrible thing. The worst thing that's ever happened in our world. If it ended there, it would be too bad for me and you. But it didn't end there. Because verse says, 8 says, but Noah... But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Thank the Lord. Did you know you're a descendant of Noah? So verse 9 goes on. That's the last verse we're going to take today. because It gets a little strange, but for me it kind of brings it together on this journey we're taking. Because it says these are the generations of Noah. And then you would expect they would list the sons. Japheth, Ham, Shem. But it doesn't. Verse 9, go to that one, Fred says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man. And perfect in his generation? No, perfect in his generations. What's that mean? And Noah walked with God. Well, if you take that word perfect, tamim, in the Hebrew, it means without blemish, without spot, unimpaired. That word always in the Holy Scriptures pointed to a physical defect. They used that term when they picked the lamb that was supposed to be spotless once a year to sacrifice for the sins of the people. It had to be a spotless lamb, unblemished, unimpaired. Could it be in our journey that Noah's generations, his bloodline, was unimpaired by the Nephilim? Could it be That he, his wife, his sons, their wives, had no relations with the fallen angels at all. Because you see, if God destroyed the earth just because of sin, you and I better get some life jackets. Because this world is pretty simple, isn't it? Here we go. Here we are. This is the scriptures. Could it be that the one that was going to make the human race go again, that God was going to work through, would he cut out the Nephilim from that land or from that generation? Probably he would. You know, I looked at writings about Noah. And I thought, where would you look to find out about Noah? Well, I looked at the rabbis of this day. The rabbis today wrote about Noah. And I want to tell you about some of the writings that I found. They were not too impressed with Noah. (laughs) Can you believe it? The rabbis were not too impressed with Noah. They said, look, he builds a boat for 120 years. Where are his converts? Only his family. That one hit me pretty hard. In this day and age, if I can but win my family to the grace of God, would that not be a good thing? What about your family? Your extended family? If I can live my life before my sons, where they will be turned to God, If I can live before my wife who really knows me, that may be the hardest thing of all, folks. And then they said about Noah, you know, he landed on dry land. And what's the first thing he did when he got out? He builds a vineyard. He plants a vineyard and he makes wine. Then he gets drunk. (laughs) And then they end it by saying, what can you expect from a man whose name means, what's it mean, Fred? Comfort. Or rest. Comfort or rest. I want to tell you what I think about Noah. I think what the scripture said that he was a just man. 
that he was obedient and he was faithful to God. How do you know that, Troy? Because he had a boat the size of a city block, as wide and taller than all the buildings, in his front yard for 120 years. You don't think that got some attention? The fact of it is, when you do anything for God, it's going to get the attention of the world one way or the other. There's a real religious quarterback now. His name is... <laughs> don't even have to tell you, do I? Tim Tebow. It's on your tongues and it's on the tongue of people in China and Japan and everywhere else in the world. They can get TV reception in a football game. When you do something for God, it's going to get their attention. And the New Testament tells us that Noah was a righteous man and that God strove and struggled patience with the people of Noah in his time and was patient for 120 years while building the ark and the Spirit of Christ lived through Noah to try to reach these people. God doesn't want you to perish. So at the end of my time, will God look and say, Troy, how many times do you go to church? <laughs> I'd smile at that because it's my job. I'm here all the time. What if you say, how many times do you preach? That's not going to be a good one. I don't do it very often. How many souls did you win? I don't think that's going to be the ledger at all. I think God's going to look at me and say, were you faithful? And were you obedient to me regardless of the outcome? Were you? I think he's going to say to me, Troy, did you become obedient and let me save you? Because that's what it's all about. The word for Noah's ark is used one more place in the Bible. And it's not the ark of the covenant, what I thought it would be. It is a little basket made of bulrushes, pitched on the inside and floated on the Nile River. It held a baby. What's the baby's name? Moses. God and Jesus are always there to bear us over the difficulties in our life. They want to save us. It was important that he built the boat, Noah. It was important that he got the animals. But what was the most important thing? Get on the boat. Let me save you. Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Noah, rest. Let me save you. I think that's the, what I'm getting from the story. He wants to save us. Get on the boat. Bring a friend. There are numerous uh, theologies and all kinds of different thoughts and beliefs that you and I might have. The same as it was in the day of Noah. But all of those cease to matter when the door of the ark was shut. Get on the boat. And bring a friend. Oh, <laughs> a riddle for you. Methuselah, the guy that lived to 969 years old, his name means his death will bring. Guess what big event happened the day he died? <laughs> 